0: Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing. The good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who have done some amazing things in policing, and I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello, folks, welcome to episode 59 of the Tiger Gillette Foxtrot Podcast. Hope you're all well. I thought I'd start with um, a recording of Sir Mark Raleigh addressing, I suppose, the people of London as well as his own officers and staff. Um, I find it a remarkable speech, uh, actually quite emotional in a weird sort of a way, but rather than me
1: blaring on about it, I'll let you listen to it. We're here to serve the public, and I'm optimistic, despite our current challenges, that we will succeed in renewing policing by consent. But speaking plainly, the Met has let you down, and in particular, we've let two groups down. Firstly, those who feel unsafe and are losing their trust and confidence in us. That's most clear with black Londoners, with women, with the LGBTQ community and with people with disabilities. Second, we've let down the heroic, dedicated majority of police officers who feel let down by leaders, by regulators and politicians for not setting them up to succeed in their chosen vocation. My clear mission is to reform policing by consent. We can only do this by standing shoulder to shoulder with those we serve, being honest about what we need to fix and listening to those groups that we fail to protect. At the heart of this lies five themes of reform. Firstly, our standards will be higher. I will be ruthless about removing those who corrupt our integrity. Secondly, we will build the strongest community policing model this city has ever seen. Third, many Londoners and victims of crime feel our day-to-day service is not good enough, not reliable enough. We must prevent and detect more crime. We must get the basics right. Fourth, many officers feel disillusioned. They face an increasingly blurred mission that distracts them from their police work and serving the public. Fifth and finally, we've seen the world around us repeatedly reinvented over the last few years by new technologies. Policing must do the same if we're to succeed in this modern era. By the end of this year, we will have already made progress against these five themes. We will demonstrate to you that we are serious about reform and renewing policing by consent. But ultimately, my pledge to Londoners, my pledge to you, is to deliver more trust, less crime and high standards.
0: So I don't know what you thought of that, but uh, I've got to say, I was really, really impressed with that, really impressed. And um, I think he's absolutely nailed it there. The messaging was spot on in terms of addressing uh, the people of London and, and arguably the people of the UK because of the central role that the Met plays in the life of the country. Uh, but also to his staff who, as you know, um, and I've talked about it ad nauseum, I've written about it ad nauseum, that police officers nationally and I think particularly in London because of all of the attention that they've been receiving for all sorts of reasons, good and bad, mainly bad, uh, are really feeling thoroughly fed up with it all. And hard a day goes by that I don't get contacted by someone who is seeking my advice about uh, what they should do, whether they should stay in the police or whether they should should go. Um, But interesting there that the focus is now turning very much towards so a better service to victims of crime to uh, a clearer sense of what the priorities should be and a real commitment to uh, improve standards uh, there's a lot i mean obviously within a, that's what a 2 or 3 minute long address there will be heaps and heaps and heaps of detail uh, inside each one of those points I'm quite sure and obviously it goes uh, without saying that the proof of the pudding will be in the eating but I must admit that uh, it was music to my ears and uh, and I don't know if Sir Mark listens to this podcast but I wish you the very very best from the bottom of my heart I wish you the, the best of luck with that and if there's anything I can do to help you um, or to be a confidential sounding board um, I'd be very happy to do that if that doesn't sound too puffed up and grandiose to say that. Um, right so this week I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to one of my policing heroes who is a retired detective chief superintendent Hamish Campbell. Hamish uh was involved in so many high-profile, complex investigations over a very, very successful career that was, you know, marked by a lot of controversy around some of those investigations, not least the Jill Dando investigation. But Hamish has got policing and investigations, crime investigations running through his his body like a stick of Blackpool rock. And, um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed our chat. It was fascinating to listen to his perspectives and uh, also to hear about what he's doing now out in Jamaica, which, uh, yeah, real toe-curling stuff in terms of the the level of threat that he and his people are having to deal with out there and the level of threat that the Jamaican police deal with. So, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll shut up now and uh, let you listen to Hi Ian. Can you hear me? Ah, oh, look, I can even see you and everything. Look at that. Yeah. Are you the man that never
2: sleeps? I think no, I did that normal time because you got <laughs> confused, but what <well>, not that? No. <laughs> no, I no, went no, to bed uh, at ten o'clock and it's now six a.m. or eight
0: a.m. I, I think it's probably our age, isn't it, really? To uh, sort of uh, middle, to, are we? Are we still? We still define ourselves as middle-aged, or we would we more accurately fit into the category of late middle-aged? What do you think?
2: We're not middle-aged any longer. <laughs> I'm sixty-five. I don't know what you are. So that is.
0: Oh, when I was okay. a younger man,
2: I used to think of people at sixty-five and think, "Wow."
0: Let's uh, let's pretend we're thirty-five then, shall we? But uh, listen, um, <laughs> really great to see you, and um, you know to you'd agreed to come on the podcast, it's great. And um, I'm really looking forward to chatting to you because um, without sounding, I'm trying not to sound like I'm going to blow smoke up your ass here, but um, you're kind of one of my sort of, um, one of the people I really looked up to over the years, you know, as an investigator and a great sort of um, ambassador for policing, really. So, uh, so yeah. Cool. That's Thank you. Great. So um, what, what I'd like to do... Um, In the next sort of, hour and a bit probably, yeah. To uh, stick to the usual format that I do with most of the people on the, on the podcast. So, so we'll we'll discuss. um, We can have a chat about your life before coming into policing. uh, What propelled you into policing in the first place? Some of your recollections of your early career, and uh, obviously then you know went into investigations and then. Really interested in hearing about some of those um, high-profile investigations that you're sort of very best known for. Uh, if you're happy to talk a little bit about those, and uh, and then we can move into what you're doing now, out in Jamaica. If you're uh, if you're happy with that, okay, sure. Brilliant. So uh, so yeah, the young Hamish Campbell. So let's talk about your name first of all. Uh, if you're not actually from scotland you've clearly got family from scotland would that be fair to say
2: no i'm not i'm my father was scottish tom through and through um and all his family were from there so my father and then grandparents on that side my mother was half scottish so she was my mother's actually was a campbell as well right so her maiden name was campbell and married a campbell so there's campbells everywhere. that kept it it in the the family family, then Right. Yeah. So, yeah,
0: yeah. so, so uh, but so that were, Scottish you... name,
2: Hamish McNeil Campbell, that was very much part of. They were. They. They are Scottish. For yes. nationalism was reinvented.
0: Yeah, but you're uh, obviously
2: you grew up in in uh, in England, is that right? Well, no, we, we were all born. Um, well, three of us. My twin brother and my younger brother. We were born in Africa. We. My right. it was in in Ghana, so we were born in Ghana, and we lived in Ghana. Right.
0: And
2: he moved to Nigeria, so we in turn moved to Nigeria when we were six, and then we all returned at the start of the Biafran War. Well, we did with our mother, right. he with the company, for a little bit longer, and then came back to England.
0: Right. Okay. So um, the young, young Hamish, at uh, what point did you start having a um, an inkling that uh, law enforcement was the was the route for you in life?
2: Well, you know, I, I mean, I do remember it because my parents remember it as well. I was very young. I was just very interested and fascinated with, primarily, I have to say, with being a detective. I have no idea why.
3: Right.
2: From, but I mean, from, you know, 11, 12 years old, that is I was fascinated by true crime murders. I was buying books at 12, 13 on true crime cases. Yeah. English murders, primarily. And which... I still have, you know, published in 69, 70, 71. Right. I just read them all, and I, and that's what I wanted to do. I just, there's nobody else in the family who was in the police or anything up. But I, that was my main attraction, was detective work and homicide.
0: Right, wow. So that's, uh, that's, that's got to be a first, I think. Have, so here, I think you're going to be episode something like 59 of the podcast, and uh, you're the first person who, who knew... At, such a young age that that was probably what you wanted
2: to do. So it's clearly, yeah. clearly uh, hardwired into you. So what? <laughs> yes, uh, what for you... some reason. Then my my, you know, we were at boarding school. All three of us we were at boarding school. And my father knew the interest, and he mentioned about the police cadets, which I was unaware of. Really, he said, "Well, you know, you could join, you could join the police cadets if you wanted to." Because I wasn't, I wasn't university. You know, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't graduate stuff or material like that. Um said, well, yeah, that's very interesting. And initially looked at, um, we lived in Derbyshire then right. up in Buxton and we looked at Derbyshire Constabulary, or I did with my father, mm-hmm. but I just wanted to join London please.
3: Right. I
2: just lived in London, my, my, my aunt lived in London with her two children, so our, our first cousins. So I knew, I just knew London. I just somehow had to be London. So we went to Derbyshire had a, a day with other recruits potential. And I said, you know, I still want London. Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, join Metropolitan Police Cadets," and and of course the Met Police Cadet Corps at that time was the pool, the re, the reserve pool for the Met- Metropolitan Police. I mean, they were all we were all young boys, mm-hmm. but the, at that stage the Metropolitan Police in 1974 was five thousand officers short. You know that was that was the critical issue. You know, from the 60s on was pay. it. Yeah. And so the Metropolitan Police was a feeder, in, was a guaranteed feeder into the Met Police.
3: Yeah.
2: I joined it, I wasn't even 17. So, so, you, were, so you were, as, the police. You were a... I joined the police just before my, in January, before my three months, my 17th birthday.
0: Oh, bloody hell. So you were just a bunch yeah, from 1974
2: you, bloody... right the way through to 2013. I was Metropolitan Police through and through. Flipping
0: act 1974. Yeah. Bloody hell. So do you know how old
2: I was then, Himish? I was nine then. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that much older. I was seventeen. I of course we joined with just lots of other. We we were young. We were young men, boys really, sixteen, seventeen. There were just hundreds of us, and and the cadet corps had uh, young men from the Royal Ar- Royal Constabulary at that time, RUC and Kent. They were feeders for those two organisations as well, police forces.
0: Right, and uh, so that was a year was it, as a cadet, was
2: it? It was a year. It was going to be more than a, a year. Um, because at, when I joined in '74, the entry rate, age, age was 19. But whilst we were there, much to our wonderful surprise, they dropped the age to 18 and a half because they were still short. Yeah. Thousands of police officers. So suddenly our cadet corps um, finished at six months earlier. and We went straight up to the main school, did the attestation at Scotland Yard, and we, we were in the police.
0: So you were just a just a youngster even then. So, So, oh, yeah. Um, so yeah. So so let's fast forward. To training school. Training school was what it was. I suppose. Um, I think we either loved it or hated it. I I loved Hendon, but uh, not everybody did. Um, so where did you get? Where was your first posting in the Met then? Um,
2: he, what was you know, London? The London borough of Camden. Camden. Right. Those days. I mean, this is all old history, but other others would know from that era. Metropolitan Police was really big on sport, you know, like mm-hmm. has changed like everywhere I think, and divisions or London boroughs E district E division was a judo
3: borough.
2: Oh, D- really? D was rugby, and I did judo from the cadets from sixteen, and I was you know I was I was very good at it. You know, I was part of the national police team and so on. Mm-hmm. And you were picked up, go oh go to E district because there was a very um, good judo club. Right behind Albany Street Police Station, known as the, um, the Judo Khan. It was a, no, not Judo Khan, forget the, R- the Rinchiden, which had Olympic players in there, people like Starbrook and others. And the superintendent, um, get his name now, he was, he was in charge of the Metropolitan Police Judo Club and he made sure that everybody who was good at Judo went to E District. So he then had Camden, Kentish, <laughs> West Hamstead, and West Hampstead. And then we were all able for training. And if you were rugby there, you went to D, and I forget which one was cricket, but there was a cricket division. But of course, Met yeah, Police Sport—it's all—it's all changed now. You wouldn't. Oh, I know. Well,
0: I was a hockey player. Yeah. So I played. I played a police. I played hockey for the Met, um, as did yeah. my as did my brother, uh, who was who I interviewed on the podcast. Uh, who was also in the Met with And you know, I forget
2: and... where football was. I want to say somewhere like H, way out in East London or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is funny though, isn't it? And I'm speaking to uh, an ex-colleague of mine from Special Branch days. Uh, Neil Sinclair, uh, I think it's next week I'm speaking to him, and uh, and he was a, I'm I'm probably going to murder the facts here, but uh, I believe he used to play for Harlequins rugby, and uh, and and he I think got selected in inverted commas on the basis of his rugby playing skills, yeah,
3: rather
2: rather than any other. I'm probably doing him. Yes, because they wouldn't have anything else to select you on. They didn't know what we were like, police officers. You know, we were we were still all just young. Young men, really.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Different your early time. days, early memories of play so Camden, was that Echo Kilo in those days? Was that EK? say again? Was Camden Echo Kilo in those days? Echo, the, Echo Delta, right. Okay. Um so yeah. early, early memories of policing in that part of London. Um, what was it like way
2: back in Well, I mean, days? I just I I do remember it like we all do, I think, from those who sort of invested so much time in it all in the history. I mean, I remember almost I don't remember every day of course but it was a, for me like although it was a formative years i i sort of been as I say boarding school um institutionalized cadets for a year and a bit nothing seemed unusual to me you know whether it's morning parades evening parades um discipline standards it just all seemed to be normal and i wasn't military but it just seemed i mean i just enjoyed it all camden down to the borders of the Euston Road over to King's Cross, um, just some very good, very good years. But I was still focused on being a detective. So I just I knew the the culture then was you. It was arrest, 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 street arrest, and I loved it. I was seemed to be able to get the arrest, the street arrest, both in uniform. I was in. I moved into plain clothes very quickly. So nineteen seventy-five, mm. six. I was operating with others on a crime squad by 77, 78, two years then. And then 79 was made as a detective. You know,
0: yeah. It's funny, it. it's funny, isn't it? Because I mean, um, I sometimes get kind of told off a little bit by um, peers as well as a few of the sort of younger, younger, newer generation in policing because I have a tendency, I suppose, purely because of my age, to sort of harp back to those days of policing where the focus was very unambiguously about crime wasn't it it was about catching criminals um and a lot of the street craft around that would be handed down from officer to officer and you'd have this hierarchy wouldn't be on a team where you would have um the sort of experienced area car drivers who were the thief takers and then the younger officers would learn from them and then there would be Maybe you know those who got into the CID or crime squads or whatever. And obviously policing has changed so much, um, but I I do still I suppose hanker after those days. You know the days when policing was unambiguously about catching criminals. Yes, right? I mean
2: it seemed to be, but without I always try to avoid looking it through some nostalgic rose-tinted spectacles. But it was it was very much focused, as you say, on. On crime, there was nothing else really to be focused on. The all those modern, new and correct other thinking hadn't emerged. You were yeah. we were officers, there was we didn't have a car. I can remember the radios arriving where we all got one each. <laughs> you know, there was still there, were, there wasn't they were there, but we nothing was there was no one else. There was you had to patrol. Yeah. And you did have to learn how to arrest people. And arrest was the choice. I read very recently, you know, the article in the England papers that I think something like. Was it sixty percent of police officers in London hadn't made an arrest in the last year? Mm-hmm. And there were thousands who'd never made an arrest, and they don't. And I did reflect, and I thought, my goodness, I didn't go a month, and I have all the records still because I kept diaries. And stuff. I have, I made an arrest at least, well, certainly every month. Sometimes two or three in a week depends what you're on. When I was in plain clothes,
0: oh yeah,
2: right. If you were joining to join the CID and you had a diary, you had to do a back of the diary. You had to have um, an arrest every week. Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: Oh, and gotcha. th- th- these weren't not these weren't you know given into custody or shoplifting. Sure, or no no arrests for shoplifters anymore. Yeah. Now you had to have a street arrest, and that's what yeah. we were. doing. they were mostly that acid yeah,
0: self-generated, self-generated quality crime arrest, isn't it? Yeah,
2: and it's so funny that so many thousands of officers don't do any arrests, and so that comes with that it was. Mm-hmm. Called and testing your evidence and being examined and, and overseen by others. That whole yeah. issue which affected so many of us and involved of us did play an important part in the way we policed, I think.
3: Yeah, yes. That's
2: where you accumulate, you know, your thousand hours of experience. Yeah. And you become relative, relatively knowledgeable or expert in a lower E on your yeah. subject matter. And crime was my fascination. And I wasn't in... At a young age, I wasn't dealing with murders. I just wanted to be a detective. I hadn't dealt with a murder then, obviously, or even been anywhere near yeah. a murder. But I wanted to learn the craft of being an investigator. Yeah,
3: yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, it's
0: um, it's a it's a, a really interesting um, journey that that people go on, isn't it? And hmm. you know, I was having this conversation with a previous podcast guest, uh, Maggie Oliver, um, last week, and she. She went into sort of she was in the serious crime side of things, but then ended up getting involved in lots of sexual offences and things. And there is a kind of a there is a kind of a myth, isn't there, in the media that um, you know all cops are the same, and uh, and you know and I know that that's not the case. And uh, there's it's fantastically, particularly in today's policing, it's fantastically diverse and complex, isn't it? And the yes. Things, the things that policing touches are are are, uh, many, many and varied, aren't they? So so, um, in terms of your career, then, you became a detective and um, uh, ultimately you would have become probably uh, one of, if not the most uh, high profile and well-known detectives in the UK, arguably. Um, but in those early days of your investigative career, what kind of stuff were you were you doing? Were you on squads or were you on sort of local CID?
2: No, I was I was um, CID through and through in those early years. So when I was made a detective, in uh, funny enough, I look back, it was a, I was made a detective on the twenty sixth of April, nineteen seventy nine. And 20 years later, 26th of April, 99, was when the Gildando murder took place. It's wow. a quirk of time, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> 20 years later from being appointed as a detective. And I went to uh, West Hampstead, which was still on E. They still kept me on E.
3: Right.
2: So West Hampstead, which covered all that north part of the London borough of Camden.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then to Heathrow for a short while, and then I took promotion to Sergeant. But I was, I was, my early years was... As a detective constable division and then detective sergeant. So I was nine years as a detective sergeant and nearly 10 years as a detective sergeant. That's where I sort of, so sort of everyone thinks might be, a, I don't know if anybody thinks I was a high flyer, I certainly wasn't. You know, I, I spent years on the operational, I hate using the word frontline, I'm sorry, everybody, mm-hmm. operational environment. Yeah. Just dealing with both arrests, which were made by other colleagues and the uniform through to our own inquiries from serious assaults and then the murders, you know, because in those days, they weren't, they weren't the murder squads in the same way. You were, the, the murder was on the division, the, the division dealt with it and they obviously brought in a, mm-hmm. a detective superintendent to yeah. run the murders. So early years were just like others, just an invisible time of work, work, work.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I, just, I still just loved it. And of course, I... you would have.
0: You sort of during those years, you would have straddled that change between sort of pre-pace and post-pace, wouldn't you? Um, yes, very in much. Nineteen eighty-six. So, did yeah. you notice? Was that a significant? Uh, well, I'm sure it was a significant change to the way that you did
2: business. It was. I mean, I think. Well, it was. It was significant. There's no doubt about it. There was. We we were sort of in the in the change. Witnessing the change, I, I mean, for me, I think it was it was better because pace did actually provide a, a greater structure. I mean, there was there was um, malpractice, there was corruption, there was poor performance by many. When mm. I I can see it again here. Um, so the Police and Criminal Evidence Act did bring about necessary reforms and changes. But again, it, I just like many others, I just learned it. I, I, mm. I got straight into it and understood it, learned every section of it. Especially where it related to interviews of prisoners and the treatment mm. of prisoners, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah,
0: yeah. When I, mean, I joined in 1989, and, um, you know, it was pre tape recorded interviews. So, I, you know, in my earlier days, earliest days, it was, you know, con- contemporaneous notes of interviews and um, yeah. bloody typewriters, and for God's sake, you know.
2: Um, I think the, one of the best things was, was the introduction of tape recorders, then. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought that was the business. I mean, yeah. yeah. I can't believe it now, bringing in tech, but the, the sitting and writing out questions and answers, which laid itself open to considerable, um, okay. yes, for some,
0: um, poetic license, shall we say?
2: Yeah, but the audio, audio recording, then of course you had the next problem, well, who's going to transcribe this audio recording? So you only moved the problem of time and, and case accumulation and evidence to a, to a different level, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. it was yeah. better.
0: Yeah, yeah, so, definitely. So let's, I, wasn't,
2: uh, let's... I wasn't so long as a constable, so 79, I forget when I was promoted, 80 83. So 79 to 83, I was a detective constable. Mm-hmm.
3: Um,
2: right. 82 rather. And then I did interchange for one year. At that stage, you had to return to the to the uniform branch, which I actually loved. I loved being a uniform sergeant down in Battersea.
0: Oh okay, see you went south part. of the
2: river there. Did you did you get a nosebleed when you went south of the river? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think I lived south of the river actually. <laughs> did no, you? Yes, just yeah, just the on, out to the west. Oh, right, okay. and then back in then from then on in after 83 back to detective sergeant and then the rest of the time so i never, never went back into uniform
0: right so uh, um when you because you're obviously best known i suppose uh certainly amongst police officers and and uh, and the media for your role in very high profile murder investigations. so when did you sort of move into that type of world i suppose
2: well, I suppose it started on some on, on homic- major homicide, although at Chelsea Detective Sergeant, there were the usual, as I say, divisional murders, which we dealt with and we all wanted to be on, which I was on. Chelsea didn't actually have, fortunately, very many homicides. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then Hammersmith Moore, I was a Detective Sergeant at Hammersmith. But then I went to the um, what is now the counter-terrorism command, but that was the anti-terrorist branch then. Mm-hmm. It was separated. There was two distinct areas in the Metropolitan Police, there the anti-terrorist branch
3: mm-hmm.
2: and then special branch. I yeah. went to the anti-terrorist branch, which of course was at the period of the, um, well, the, yet the second or third phase of IRA bombings in mm-hmm. London and elsewhere. So that was, that was starting to see major uh, teams working not yeah. you know, under the, yeah, it was the old, it was the new, it was the Holmes um, system, the Holmes yeah. major inquiry system. Yeah. I was fully trained on that, five-week course in those days. So what, so what year are we talking about here? That was 1988.
0: Right, okay, so there's some pretty unpleasant 19. things going on. Was that around the time of the Hyde Park bombing?
2: It was just after Hyde Park. It was um, the deal bombing. Deal. Right. The Um, A number of bombings and shootings in in London, a recruiting sergeant shot in North London, the blowing up of the Carlton Club, um, a major operation which I was involved in with others um, when down in the West Country in Wales, where uh, an IRA uh, pyro arms dump was found by some farmers. And I remember that very clearly because, you know, from Police, anti-terrorist branch got involved, in and in an operation all in the news because they were arrested and convicted. We we set out to, to lay in wait for these IRA to return, and it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I think thought this isn't going to happen, but clearly you realise when you're a junior officer, someone does have some intelligence further up above you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you might be blind to it, and sure enough, they did turn up. You can still see them now. Convicted a man called McCumin O'Dwyer. Yeah, yeah, then, no. Up. I
0: remember, I remember that job. Um, yeah, I
2: was, they dug I was, up the they dug up the guns, which would obviously be amended, and they were julius. And then I was, I was the detective sergeant and the office manager for that case, which went to trial at the Old Bailey. But that I'm was try,
0: really I'm, I'm trying to, experience. I'm trying to think. There was, I'm trying to think now because I was special branch, but it was a bit later than that. And my brother was also special branch around that sort of time. I think he might have been involved in that job, but. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. I might be completely mm. completely going off of the tangent here, but I believe that there was a couple who were murdered on a footpath in the very remote part of
2: yeah the West,
0: West Wales. And I think there was some theory, wasn't there, that they might have stumbled across yeah a, a Pyra active service unit, but I don't think that was ever bottomed out, to my knowledge. It was.
2: I mean, it was. I mean, that murder had taken place then. Had it taken place, I hadn't taken. I don't know if it had taken place then, but that, that that was the Dixons, Mr and Mrs Dixon, who were that's murdered. That's it. That's it. They, that, that man was eventually arrested, and he was, was he? a few years ago. Yeah. Oh it right. To do with the IRA, and it was it would be unusual for the IRA, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't personally. I thought that was. And he was a, he lot was lot. a prolific um, home invader, burglar, and had killed before, but he was eventually convicted of that case.
0: That, that's right. Yeah, it's coming back to me now. Yeah, because that was the one one of the theories, wasn't it? That, that it was a provisional IRA team who had, who they. Yes, had one sort of the of theories and speculation,
2: which grows. You know? It's like all murders, and you know, later on, I realise that, in the absence of facts or substance to really move things, forward everyone will speculate. Yeah, speculation yeah, speculation yeah. becomes almost in itself or truth, yeah. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. and it's very difficult then to overturn views and thinking and prejudice on, on homicide investigations and can steer inquiries wrong.
0: Yeah you know definitely and certainly if to look at it why would why, it, why about, would the
2: IRA do
0: that talk about some of that stuff uh in a bit. So so you so yeah so you were on you were on what was SO13 anti-terrorist branch um the sister unit of, of SO twelve which was ours, yeah. which was what I was
2: on. Um and then three years there and then from there that was the last part of my so I said nine, ten years a detective sergeant. That was the last Role as a sergeant, and then I from for the anti-terrorist branch, I took promotion,
3: right,
2: to inspector, hmm. and then became a detective inspector, yeah. and went back onto division.
0: How did you find um police promotion processes back in those days? It was the dreaded, the dreaded sergeant and inspector's exam? what's your have you got a good memory because it's it was pretty much all about memory. <laughs> I, in those days I was
2: I that. was the worst. I mean, I, I told you I wasn't an academic and When I when I took the sergeant exam the first time round, which you had to learn the police manual, it seemed to me, by heart, which was ridiculous, um, I failed it. <laughs> I took the exam again, and I passed it and came right at the top as I learnt it all. Yeah. And then when I took the inspection exam, I passed it first time. Again, you have to learn that book. And then you had to be interviewed, and I failed it. Oh, and I, the next year, I passed it. In fact, there's only one promotion. <laughs> For anybody who's listening, it wasn't the police and still in the police, which I passed the first time once only, and that was the chief superintendent. Right. The other promotion exam I failed at least once and sometimes three times.
3: Yeah,
0: well, Could-
2: I think it makes you uh,
0: you know, I think I, I'm I was quite similar. I was I, I I did it the hard way as well, you know. Um well, certainly I, I I got through the inspect, I think, yeah, for inspectors first time around. Uh, but then chief inspector, I stalled at chief inspector for a while. It took me a few goes to get chief inspector. And then yeah,
2: so it's it's a bit of a lottery, isn't it? But yeah. sort of and it does seem it. that the police service, well certainly the met I only have that experience, did keep changing the way yeah. they they promoted and, and the criteria and, and the different standards and approaches. You, you could go from one year to the next, of course, which I did because I kept failing. Um, meet a different set of rules and, and and engagements to conduct. It was and write reports out you're, of this of one of the, my previous, you of my previous. You had to write about yourself to an extent which was just farcical, really. When you look back, <laughs> if, if senior yeah. command can't figure it out, then <laughs> yeah, it. but one of my previous
0: podcast guests, Bob Bird, uh, I think it took him seven or eight goes to become a superintendent. And uh, they were joking with them. the HR department. Basically, said we'd run out of questions, so we, <laughs> we exactly to... yeah. <laughs> and
2: I really also said so formulate.
0: So you really, um, you really kind of did your the hard yards, as I'd say. Um, you know, you weren't one of these sort of corporate butterflies who kind of like flew up the
2: ranks really, really quickly. You kind of put no. I certainly was in. not. I used to joke with some of my colleagues. They were they were high flyers, and I think one of them once likened me to sort of. I'm sort of the lumbering Hercules aircraft, which does eventually lift off from the uh, thing. I wasn't the Harrier Jets of the <laughs> promotion world. But I always put it down because, because I liked the work. I did, I did, you know, I have... I just love the Metropolitan Police. I love yeah. the work. And the organizer does doesn't love you, but I yeah. like the work, and so I just got on with it. And all right, And every failure brought me doing something different. Yeah. Thought, well if it hadn't been if i had passed i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing now yeah but you i just enjoyed my, my i was very very fortunate i was this yeah. i was a detective i was involved in, in long before the high profile world and afterwards mm. in, in many murder cases they're just they're known to me and the others and the family and the victims but they're the, the invisible murders which made up yeah they a growing uh, experience that I gained and others on on homicide investigation and trying to yeah. get it.
0: So, what was the first? Um, what was the first? What you would describe as a cat A murder that you got involved in. In other words, a murder that was sort of no obvious suspect, no obvious motive, and um, you really had to sort of do proper detective work to actually figure out who did who'd done it. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I remember the first one, which wasn't, it was never, it was local news, but, which I thought initially, and I, assume, I was a DI, the superintendent, there was a woman, the a, a, a remains of a, what was eventually turned out to be a woman, skeletal remains in a garage in South London. And she didn't have a head, hmm. at the hair. And I remember thinking then, oh, well, we don't even know who this is. We, she's obviously been there for many months. And that was my sort of, First experience of well, this is this is potentially a stranger homicide, or this is going to be difficult. This isn't a domestic, this isn't a stabbing. All the all the classic frameworks of homicide, which we most of the time encounter. But funny enough, ironically, I remember thinking in the superintendent, it unravelled so quickly that within forty-eight hours we had found the person. Oh God! CCTV at all, but of course, like many murders, it unravelled quickly because. When we did identify her very swiftly, the one thing the killer hadn't done was remove from under her body her house keys. Right. And it had the name Donna on it. And so we did check overnight, I involved and others, on all missing persons in London the last three months or, or whatever it was, because we knew roughly how long she'd been in that condition, mm-hmm. named Donna. And only one came up. Mm-hmm. And stroke of luck, or luck, we sent the officers around there, the team went around to the house hmm. with the key, and it opened it. Oh, nice one. Right. Within, within 24 hours, I remember we'd found her, and then right, we're well, like, all right, who killed her? And just, again, it's, it's moving quickly, because house to house, literally house to house, goodness me, um, a young girl next door said, yeah, I know her, and I know the man who, um, who was with her, because he used to come round. And she said, "Well, who is it?" He said, "Well, I don't know his name, but he's got a tattoo on his hand,
3: right.
2: there, with his name on it. I forget his name for the minute, probably wouldn't mention it. Anyway, mm-hmm. lo and behold, of course, that man with the tattoo on his hand, who spoke with a Scots accent, was at the crime scene when I was there with the superintendent. Really, I, I, someone yeah. grabbed and he some, had been he had been saying name. loudly again, putting himself in the scene. And these are experiences which may be good or bad in terms of future inquiries. He put himself." And he said, Oh, I, I smelt something. So I, I, I wondered what it was. So I came to have a look. And we obviously thought, Well, thank you very much. And I remember speaking to him. So the superintendent, that was him. Well, I tell you, we found that house the next morning with a whole posse of officers. Brilliant. And you know, without, I mean, talk about timing. He had a suitcase in the hallway, without exaggeration, packed. His wife was there and his two children. He was ready to go. He was off to Scotland without his wife and two children. She, i remember she couldn't understand how why but why are you going gordon why are you? yeah he said i got to go and we arrested him and he was charged with murder and he was convicted and fantastic lo and behold of course he had a previous conviction for murder i love uh,
0: i love i love those sort of things when you know when it all sort of like it's, it's comes down like dominoes really, really quickly and I, I love those stories about the keys as well i had quite a few experiences like that with keys you know you'd seize a key or you'd find a key mm. hidden in a car under under the mat or something and and then a little bit of digging in and a bit of intel and you'd identify an address and you'd go around so excited to this address you'd put the key in the door and then when it opens it's like you just want to give everyone a big high five don't you um, yeah now it
2: it was I mean, and i think that experience but and so many others that say the the the, the invisible murders and homicide investigations were all accumulative experience and learning and we made mistakes even in that case i mean and i interviewed him and he was you know i remember getting a commendation from the judge even because he 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 spoke with a with a lawyer but he lied
3: mm.
2: always used just say give us a lying prisoner anytime yeah. <laughs> I was clever with the metropolitan police because i always used to think the metropolitan police is not beyond the wit of any police force really to um to meet the challenge of criminals and if they want to lie yeah. You go ahead and lie, and that's why lawyers will obviously say, inevitably, do not speak to the police, because yeah. they will—you'll will, be caught out. Not, I don't mean by I me. Mean, I mean by really clever interviewers mm. armed with facts and knowledge. And if you want to speak and try to box your way out of a potential criminal charge, go ahead.
3: Yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. That's what I loved. Lie. I
2: loved the interviews. I loved other people doing interviews and and boxing them in. So they remained silent, like the counter-terrorism command, anti-terrorist branch, who yeah. did accuse members of the IRA and, and terrorists. Of course, they sat there for three, four, five days at Paddington and said not a word. Hmm. That's right. I think you can do about that.
3: Yeah, I know.
2: You have it's, to move to a, the world of forensics. Yeah,
0: well, that's just, I mean, it's interesting, going back to those days that you're describing, um, things have changed, as you know, so much, haven't they? Um, particularly around... The use of technology i think technology I is the big one isn't it really in terms of um you know and i used to I, when i was uh, a certain term in my, in my previous life you know before i left policing um i used to do an awful lot of covert authorities and technology i make this point that it's a double-edged sword isn't it in the sense that on one hand the exponentially growing volumes of data make managing that technology very very tricky sometimes but having said that i would argue that unless you're some sort of unbelievable super spy or something you are going to find it almost impossible to commit a serious crime now without leaving a fairly significant technological trail of breadcrumbs behind you aren't you mm. I agree. So, so let's move to uh, so my the first time i met you um, Hamish, uh, well, the fact, I believe uh, I met you two or three times, but you probably don't remember me because I was on the surveillance team at the time. Let's fast forward to 1999, April 1999, um, and the Jill Dando murder, which is you were the SIO for that, isn't that right? That was. Um, were you immediately the SIO on that job, or, or did you take over from
2: someone else? No, I, I was, because by then I had. The murder groups had been established by then, so I was a detective, what was I? I think you were DCI, weren't you? Chief Inspector. Mm -hmm. That murder team at at, uh, Central London, there were three Central London uh, sites, Belgravia, Kensington, and Notting Hill. And I was the on-call for the Central London piece out of of, uh, Kensington. Right. So when, and when we, we we had been dealing with other murders, obviously like all the other teams, we had other murder investigations ongoing, mm-hmm. and that was the second week of on call for me and the team. And then it would have gone to the other DI, and that broke that murder mm. went down, and that was that was it. That was it was strange when you look back in in one way. I was the SIO. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's
0: it's an interesting one, isn't it? Just the way that Say again. I say it's interesting, sort of the the pot, it's pot luck, isn't it, really, Um, that you picked that up and then, as I say, could so easily have been someone else, couldn't it? Um, Yeah, I used to think that. We all used to think that.
2: It's just, I'm just going to close this door here. One second. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's to the outside. No worries. yes it was it was structured differently then but that the, when when jill dando's murder occurred it, it was just two months after the mcpherson report yeah. but we all were aware of the first reports um pending publication you know on the steam on the back of the stephen lawrence inquiry and um, the way homicide was was to be investigated. Although we were following that route, we were—they you know there were decision logs being made beforehand, hmm. not quite the detail that I wrote about, and, and others. So I, I just remained with it. But again, the structure was different. There was there was a chief superintendent for the whole of the murder command, right. that area. But there was no superintendent. I don't recall a superintendent. Oh, there was a floating superintendent. There was, and uh, but things were left. As they were it's, it's almost like well it's it's your turn so yeah. you crack on with it yeah there must have been sufficient faith in yeah the that i was going to be able to manage it otherwise they could have technically just said well amish you're not you're not Supposing i'd just arrived yeah yeah that would so
0: be- um so just to reprise uh reprise the kind of circumstances that for anybody who's listening to this who because people listen to this from all over the world and um uh, as well as sort of younger people, I suppose, who who maybe haven't got the same memory of, of all of this. Well, oh now, it's 22 years. So um uh, so, so Jill Dando, um very, very well known TV personality, BBC TV personality, one of the presenters of Crime Watch UK, um, prolific uh, across multiple genres of TV, um, much loved by the British public. Um Gunned down in cold blood on her doorstep outside her house whilst uh, walking into the house in April 1999. So, describe what it must, what it felt like to suddenly pick up an investigation of that nature because it was massive news, wasn't it?
2: It was, it was, it was enormous. I, I kept my own diary notes then, just as I did for all the other cases. I think, I look back on it. I mean, I've done a number of interviews over the past, you know, television documentaries from way back in 99, 2000. And I lectured on the case on on a number (laughs) of issues, not about about the accused person who was subsequently acquitted, but about the case and investigation high profile. And I think for me, although it it was enormously challenging and difficult at times, and it went on for so long, there was something about, which I reflected on, my past experience of homicide investigation. And I wasn't, like others, I was a fully accredited, trained SIO. I'd been on the various courses and more to come afterwards. So I had an understanding of homicide in a sort of wider picture. And in, in one at one level, Jill Dando's death was a murder.
3: Hmm
2: the way all the noise and all the media and the speculation and the hype and the rumors and so on. it was still the murder of a woman gunned down in the street. Mm-hmm. To go through the same, I used to insist on it, we go through the same principles and approaches to this murder as we do to the others, and, and to try to avoid, and avoid as much as possible, the rushing after bright, shiny gems of information, unless they're really good. Um, mm-hmm and diverting away on other people's theories and suggestions. We needed to, need to really control it because we had, well, my team had 14, 15 investigators only. Right. No detective inspector. There was no inspector, I was a chief inspector. Mm.
3: Um,
2: but it had six sergeants and that team had to grow. And by the end of the first week, or certainly by the end of the second week, the team was 60 strong. Oh, God. I hadn't led a team of sixty strong before, mm-hmm. and to manage the team, and then we got got a, a acting DI, um, Ian Horrocks, who came from one of the other teams. So it was it was both an internal issue, and understanding mm-hmm. of how to manage and control this team and coordinate everything, as well as the murder investigation, yeah. and then for me. Meeting upwards, talking upwards from the commissioner downwards. Commissioner, assistant commissioner, deputy commissioners. Who was the commissioner at the time? Was it Condon? Yes, Sir Paul Condon.
3: Hmm.
2: And then Sir John Stevens took over at the time when um, there was the ultimate arrest. So yeah. it was—it was immense uh, stress in one way, but it occupied my mind day in, day out, as others. Hmm. For over a year, and the thing is, here you are asking the question twenty years later. Yeah, I know. Wild, Every it? year it goes its anniversary. I mean, the, those early years. No, I don't think there was a week. It wasn't a week in that year where that murder wasn't referenced somewhere in the papers. Yeah,
3: yeah,
2: yeah. And then yeah. two thousand, an arrest, the trial in two thousand mm-hmm. and one. Then it it settled because the man was initially convicted. And then it went for review, and the CTRC, and then it went back to appeal, and the years just kept going on. And it's a the case which has therefore stayed with me every year since then. And then television documentaries, and mm. I'll do this, or make comment on that, and there's a new there's a new bit of information or something it went on throughout the rest of my my career. That particular case, which was extraordinary.
0: Yeah. Um, I yeah. Have to- so I, I worked. Uh, we were brought in. Um, I was a surveillance. Um, photographer on a special branch surveillance team and i think yeah. we were i think we were brought in and briefed by you one evening um, okay on uh, one of the one of the nicks in west london somewhere kensington somewhere like that yeah and um and i think it was um so we were on that for a good few weeks i think uh, and i took loads of pictures of, of of barry george which all went into the, oh, the know, sur- in the surveillance period yeah, yes in, in the evidential into the evidence, yes world um yeah so it was a weird one that because obviously typically we were doing counterterrorism work or national security work Mm. and then then we were brought in to support you on on that job um so yeah i i sort of you know was i became incredibly familiar with barry george you know during that period
2: yeah that's Um, interesting
0: yeah um (laughs) and i took many many photographs of him
2: yes Um, i see i mean i recall some of them some some of them were even used at the um or one was used at the trial. Yeah.
3: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So it was a weird I actually tell a funny story. I didn't
2: say which job
0: I was involved in. In my book, I described how one summer day I was sat in the back of my van in um, Kings Road, I believe. Ken Ken High Street, maybe one of those. Sweating, my nuts off. I was in the back of the surveillance uh, van. It was boiling hot, and I was literally stripped down to my underwear, because it was so, it was like being in a horrible sweatbox, yeah. and um, and uh, I was I was that was that job. I was photographing him. He was coming out of a a building of some description. I can't remember what, but I remember wiping, having to wipe the sweat out of my eyes, trying to you know, and trying to clear the viewfinder from the camera because of it was just horrible, horrible being stuck in the back of those freaking vans. But um, but yeah, so in, I imagine. Uh, I'm pretty stating the obvious here, Hamish, but I imagine that must have been very um difficult for you to go through all of that period of um you know the conviction and then the appeals and then the overturning the conviction and then sort of I suppose effectively being back to square one again in many ways. I mean how did that feel?
2: It, I'm I was very I'm very philosophical about it. I'm very philosophical about many things. I think that's that's I don't want to say lively, but that is just the way it is. Hmm. Uh, we, 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 as, we as investigators, as a police force, police service, were required to investigate. And I think we did it to the best of our ability at the time. I mean, it was, it was overseen and scrutinized so much. It had a first... The, the, the major homicide reviews had started then. So we were reviewed within two months. We were reviewed a year later. Of course, when we came towards moving to any, any charge, the Crown Prosecution Service, and in particular, the Treasury Council barristers, boy, I had great much admiration for. They reviewed it all. And then we had a review, it's a sort of review, I call it a review, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, because we had a three-day voir dire with Mr. Michael Mansfield, QC cross-examining me for three days in the witness box. Was that the jury? Oh, Oh, God. My case, and all my decision logs, and every decision log, I mean, there were... Eight, nine books of decision logs. Each book had 40 pages. Mm. That was a sort of review because, and I used that, that's what I used to use for learning and training. You know, you, you can go along swimmingly all your police career, it doesn't matter what career it is, and never be tested. Mm. And a John Stevens used to say this, Sir John Stevens, a commissioner, everything can go smoothly when you're not being tested and no one's saying, well, why did you do this? Why did that? And then you meet, you know, the professionalism of, a, both prosecution counsel, who sort of test you gently, but mm. still brutally, and then the defense counsel. But sure. well, what, what about this? And then that was the review. Then the judges, then the jury's review. So it, it was always a review, but I was very philosophical. Mm. I I used to say to the team, you haven't done anything wrong. Lisa Silley said, hope yeah. you haven't done anything wrong. That was a mantra. If you've done nothing wrong, and you're just plain, transparent, and honest with mm. how we did this work, that's it. Yeah. But it was a very illuminating test of situations yeah. from that case that, you know, I carried on with murder for a short while and then went back into well, eventually I was homicide commander, detective chief superintendent. It's that case which was critical to sort my further learning and understanding of things. And then that's why I presented and lectured on the matter hmm. in the polls. And... Processes and leadership and command of case management,
3: hmm.
2: and then understanding where errors are made and can be made um, hmm. across a whole range of homicides in London. And when I was under yeah. the chief superintendent for the murder, you know, I saw m- hundreds of murders. Hmm. Is the teams monthly? They knew my routine, going around to all the sites, listening to their cases, trying to assist where I can, without interfering. That was the mm. lesson I learned also, don't interfere with senior investigators, try mm. to guide, <laughs> mm. mm. yeah. give some mentoring, but don't start suggesting how the investigation should be done, unless it's so, you know, wrong. Yeah. But it, yeah, yeah. A big learning experience for me and it, did, it put me in a different level of thinking about policing and homicide investigation.
0: Yeah, I think there's something there, isn't there, about um, that willingness to be uh, open and transparent. A, I think some police officers f- see that as a sort of a threat was actually they should probably see it as a as a as an opportunity isn't it it's an opportunity for learning and it's an opportunity for self-reflection and um none of us uh, are are without fault are we you know we're not being, we're all human beings aren't we and uh and i think um yeah, where I see people really digging themselves into a hole sometimes is when they've made a uh, a decision which is probably not a good decision, and then they will um, rather than reflecting and saying actually, on um, yeah, I, I I can see where you're coming with that, and, uh, and, and, and with the benefit of hindsight, I don't I think I probably would have done something different, um, but at the time. Um, that was my decision, and uh, I thought, that, you know, I, I think it's when people try to defend the indefensible, it becomes a problem. Yeah,
2: if you're just plain wrong. And that's why, I mean, I did my decision logs in that matter, and that approach was, well, I remember the judge saying they they were meticulous, but they but I knew where this case was going. I had a sort of foresight. Whether somebody was arrested or not was irrelevant. Hmm. It was going to be, if we didn't solve it, it was going to be scrutinised to death. Um, if we did solve it, it was going to be scrutinised. Mm-hmm. So I was I was writing with so in that in mind. So well, why are we doing this? Why are we not doing that? Why was all articulated? Mm-hmm. suspects, arrests, media strategy, general admin, every everything. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a useful. I think I hope. Ten years afterwards, I I lectured at Hendon. You know, within the SIO senior investigating officers course to many, many up and coming detective inspectors, the chief investigators, um, with that in mind. So I brought the books along and I explained this, that, and rationale and some of the learning points and legal issues, which I think did help. I mean, that's what it was at the end. You have to, you know, I used to say, we're we're not the future, you're the future. So you need to just learn from this. Mm. Homicide was about using narrative learning for others. And I was part of the National Homicide Working Group when I was a detective chief. And I used to go where we met up in the north of England. And all these other senior homicide detectives, other chief superintendents attended. And we used to give lectures or they would give lectures on their certain murder cases, sold or unsolved. So we could all come to an understanding on the latest techniques, technology, phones, IT, forensic, as well as the flaws, and the mm-hmm. best talks were the ones where the errors were made.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. And then, then you learn, that, not, as you say, nothing is, we're not in, uh, infallible, we are
3: rather. Okay.
2: Um, and we have to learn from these issues.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah the body, definitely. The bodies which have been disposed of, and so many cases. And that accumulative knowledge, you know, I think helped me and by giving back to others in my latter years of homicide because the Metropolitan Police Homicide Command, for my money, of course, um, mm. was first class. Mm. They were dedicated men and women at almost, every, at almost every level or every level, no matter what role they were doing. They just wanted, like I did when I was younger, to A, be involved in homicide investigation for whatever motivation, but more importantly, to solve it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It became a challenge. And that's, you know, the latter years of when I was, in the murder command, there weren't so many murders. I mean, for a population of nine million, it was my last year. There were only a hundred homicides, hundred murders, which mm. is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, gosh. gosh they um, they were almost terrible. all solved, and, and very quickly, mm. understood stood as an organisation through intelligence, informants, source hand, everything. Very quickly, almost, almost, I'd say eighty-five mm. percent of those homicides were instantly recognised for what they were and who was responsible. Might mm. not have. Custody. Yeah. And I think the modern homicide investigator now is a very different job from what I had. Very much as you were talking earlier, IT, phones, CCTV, analysis, data, the social media world, yeah. it is, is used to a fantastic extent to bring down and have these street homicides, stabbings, events solved. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah. I, it wasn't really my world, that one. I wasn't really I had one or two street stabbings, of course, and so on, but not nothing like what it seems to be now,
0: yeah. well certainly a lot of the homicides that we've seen in the u k, particularly in London over the last sort of i don't know maybe five to ten years. So let's say the last five years have been depressingly similar, haven't they, in terms mm. of uh, you know, similar kind of urban street gangs, young young uh, men stabbing each other or shooting I know each other. it is
2: it is a very depressing. Phenomenon. It is, you say young men. I mean, some of them are, some of them are boys. Mm, yeah. 15. 15 um, it, it is a, the, murder, the murder picture has changed. I mean, I'm fascinated by the you know, history of murder in London. If you map out London murders and homicides, they're very, mm. very different now than what they were. I'm talking about going back some way. If you look to the yeah. 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, mm. Mm. very different now. A, there's far more of them. Um, B, they're just a different type.
0: So just moving to another job, then. Um, just before we leave, actually, just before we leave the Jill Dando thing, um, you're sort of on record saying that you don't believe that you know anyone will ever be did mm. go back to court convicted of that murder.
3: I um, did say that. No.
0: Is is that? I mean, I, I can't envisage unless you get some sort of deathbed declaration or something like that. I can't envisage anybody ever coming into custody
2: for yes. That. I mean, I, I said that. For a documentary a few years ago and they are i said I, I don't don't consider that the, the prospect of anybody being returned because it'd when you're realistic about any investigation as it was with this one or all the others it's a it's 22 years ago now the mm. all the witnesses who we did speak to at the time and there were hundreds both eye hearing all the way around the, um they can't they can't now come forward to it mm. And say, "Oh, I did actually see something after all."
3: Yeah. And
2: we're always left with what were we left with? And um, even at the time of the trials, counsel would say, "What is it we've actually got?"
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, we don't have any fingerprints. We don't have any DNA. We don't have any CCTV. We don't have any mobile. We got. We had two eyewitnesses, one of whom has actually died now. Um, so, what would bring the matter back before the court? As you say someone comes forward and we used to say, you'd need to produce the gun. Mm,
3: mm.
2: First. And, and the gun would need to match. What is still within, you know, the forensic laboratory? The casing.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. So the bullet. Yeah.
3: yeah.
2: That, that, is, that is the core forensic, to which, would, which could possibly, but even someone producing a gun doesn't make them, mm. person, um, if that was the case, if it was to, if it was to be someone else responsible.
0: Yeah. I mean, there was all sorts of um, line. there was all sorts of theories, weren't there? You'll know them uh, better than anyone, I'm sure. You know, the, the idea of the Russian mafia, uh, Serbian hitman because of Kosovo, the stuff that's in around Kosovo, uh, organized crime, being pissed oh. off <clears throat> for their crime watch role, uh, the idea of an obsessed stalker. There was even a weird and wonderful one about an IRA hit for God. God knows why The North, the IRA would want to kill her. But, um, yeah there was all sorts of uh, it must be a nightmare um it must be a nightmare trying it was a, yeah
2: it was it was very difficult as, as i said earlier you know in the absence of substance at times every, everyone has got a theory and, and they're entitled to their theories but mm. theories come, come without a management of a case yeah. someone can sit somewhere and say i, I think it's this mm. i mean okay i mean i've got so many history cases of it all you but you you think, all right, what are you going to do about that? That's your your theory, and it's about people are coming up with theory before fact, You know, they're coming up with inferences or suggestions yeah. for the data, and it is very much a, bit of a mantra. You know, it is the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have the facts, and you can go into I'm not going to real granular detail on this mm. and any other, yeah. and, and then you can list, which we do the. What is, what is possible? You could list every possibility. You could, all those suggestions could be listed down, which we did. Hmm. But more likely, what is the probability of it all? Where, where, where are we going to start with um, the person or persons involved? Because once you're sure, any list, 99% of them have got to be wrong.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. Because <laughs> they can't all be involved in it. So right, then you've got to start organizing your, your work and your teams. Yeah. To 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 manage that those things, you know, all right, we know the you know the type of gun, we know this and that. It's, it's it was it was a difficult one.
3: Mm, but yeah.
2: me, my bit anal perhaps sort of OCD was to have a logical framework to it and keep going back to what we had and what we know and revisiting mm. and as I said in that documentary and others, you know, it was a matter of going backwards. Mm. What we might have missed and my learning is many in investigate homicide investigation or even other investigations misses miss things in the first months first weeks
3: yeah yeah
2: yeah. go back and review 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 which is what we did
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and that's how we then came across the the messages which had been overlooked in the first the first time around or one had one hadn't you know Mm -hmm. yes it was it was hard
0: yeah So let's move on to uh, another job that you're sort of well known to be having been involved in the Operation Minstead, uh, the Night Stalker, um, ultimately turned out to be Delroy Grant, who was a prolific uh, rapist of, correct me if I'm wrong here, and anything, of predominantly elderly, vulnerable people living on their own. Yeah. um in sort of south southeast london so how did you get involved in that job
2: well i mean i got involved in the short answer because when i w- was promoted or rather when i went to the homicide command that case was being investigated by one of the superintendents on the homicide command and one of the teams this the south london team but like everyone else in the CID world we all knew of that case because it had been going on for so many years when i i chief superintendent for a while within the, the territorial policing command as the senior detective. And even then it was being looked at and there was we're thinking of ways with the, with the homicide team itself to take DNA samples of large sections of the black community um, and a whole range of methodology, which perhaps wasn't going to be appropriate. And it wasn't. Hmm. So when I joined the homicide command, I knew what was... A, uh, being done and not done for all the teams and that one I was determined would, we would have to solve and it couldn't go on for another one year two years been going on for nearly 20 years one oh God. and so I did set out and I went down to the team and I spoke to Simon and who was a senior investigating officer and others and I there was a documentary as it's known I mean I called in another detective chief investigator spec, inspector and asked for a review so I'm asking Review. So, like, none of us like being reviewed. I said, but we need to review this. We need to understand what is happening or not happening and other different practices or different investigative technology and techniques. And it was reviewed. And I asked, him, and I, I was reporting up all the time. We need mm. to do something about it. And that, I'm, I'm bridging it down. But the, the review helped me, helped senior command to say we need to do this differently. And then a really effective use of analysis. There was a very clever analyst on the team. And by using some of his work, which personally I didn't think had been brought in correctly, you know, he had many ideas and views and also a decision to investigate every burglary which occurs at night in that area, not just those burglaries that it's thought may be what was known then as the Minstead Man. Now that was a lot of work, but it actually, again, very quickly broke because one of the burglaries um, had DNA on it, which belonged to the man
3: mm.
2: where he drank from something from the fridge, and then armed with a recognition of where these offences are occurring, and in fact we were undercounting his burglaries, They're not necessarily attacks. Mm. Um, a surveillance a technical operation went was, was instituted. And that brought, you know, dividends, but it's rather like my, I used back, I said to you, when I was a young sergeant sitting out in the foothills of Wales, waiting for the IRA to turn up, I did meet with the, um, what was then Chris the Dick, another senior super, uh, command assistant commissioner. So, you know, we need to put this operation into place. We need to spend the money.
3: Yeah.
2: And it was, I mean, I didn't do that. I wasn't part of the surveillance. I just maybe give him one briefing one night and it carried on for a week. After week after week, temptation was, it's not going to work, Hamish. And they, they nearly missed him on, they did miss him on one occasion. The surveillance wasn't in that area. And I said, no, we've got to keep at it. Let's just keep at it. Use my experience or false, just hold on because he is going to come. And sure enough, within a week, we we're saying that. It, it it didn't come by luck, it came because we were prepared. You know, chance gives us those who are prepared. Really. Mm-hmm. Expression. Yeah. But no, you're absolutely right. If you're, right. If you're not all. on the street with you, if you're not on the street, you won't catch a burglar burgling. That was exactly you well, well, to tell me that. He said, You're yeah. not going to find them here having breakfast, Hamish. You're going yeah, to yeah. get on that street. And we had to get out, and it cost a lot of money. Yeah. But the outcome was the arrest of that man yeah. and, and the final stopping of members of the public being burgled and home invasion and assaults. That was appalling. So, I mean, I don't think really, know. but I, mean, I, don't, I don't it, know it was. How many...
0: Fences, we we're talking about here but you know he was nicknamed the night stalker wasn't it if anybody wants to look up uh they made a tv docudrama about it wasn't it um called manhunt isn't that right yes i think so and um yeah it was excellent really I, i watched that a couple of years ago absolutely superb um you know very gripping and terrifying all at the same time and um but yeah the point you make about if you're not out in the street, you're not going to catch them. Is absolutely spot on because, I mean, I interviewed my my brother on the podcast and he tells a great story of exactly that. Where way back, I don't know if you remember, you might remember this, the Heinz baby food poisoner, a bloke called Rodney Witchelow,
2: who yeah, was a, I an, do, an ex ex police officer, yeah, That's right
0: from the regional crime squad or yeah. national crime squad, but I think he
2: was a serving officer, was he
0: not? I think he just recently retired. But he was, um, but he, my brother ar- arrested him in a very similar surveillance operation. Yeah, you know, I do recall that. Putting people out on the street into yeah. um, making a bit of a best guess and then letting them use their old
2: fashioned police kind of noise, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's very, it's, it's the only way, but I mean, if we can go back even further to the Balkan Street siege and the IR campaign in 1977, 78, when they were putting all those bombs down outside Oxford Street and everywhere else. And so, I mean, I was just a young constable. I was actually in plain clothes on the crime squad. But the decision was, you're going to put, they're going to flood London with police officers. And, and the little likes of me and others, put your uniform on Hamish, you're back. You're no longer a crime squad. And we were all on the streets. And that is how the Balkham Street bombers were caught, because they did drive by machine gun shooting on that restaurant up in uh, Belgravia. Um, there were so many police about. It was intercepted, chased, and then the 4RA went into Balkham Street. But I was just, it's it's interesting, a sort of policing philosophy. In the end, there's one way to, to sort something out and there's just flood everything. Yeah. Very, very expensive, can't go on forever. Mm. The criminals mm. prepared to carry on within that framework. Mm. You're, you're a good chance of catching. Definitely falling, like isn't it?
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: Throw a um, large net out, you're bound to pick something up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, at the risk of signing as if I'm rattling through these jobs, um, I'm just really interested. There's another job I just want to touch on, which was the really bizarre and mysterious death of Gareth Williams in 2010. So he was uh, employed by the government communications uh, headquarters, GCHQ, and I believe he was on secondment to the secret intelligence service, MI6. And then his body was found, very tightly packed into a um, sports holder, like a North Face sports holder, I believe. Um, so you got brought into, did you come in to review that job, or did you pick that up? No, with- again,
2: it was it was, is when I was on the detec- the detective chief superintendent for the homicide, hmm. the same way as Minstead was was in my domain. So that case was, and Maddie McCann, when we started up the review on that with the team. So all these other cases come in the latter part of my career when all homicide sort of fell with under my remit. But the mm. investigator was a an, another DCI, Detective Chief Inspector, Jackie Sevilla. Mm. And she investigated it. But I, I you know, took a more, not hands-on in the investigation but hands-on in relation to supporting her and engagement with the security services mm. links through because it became political with a small p yeah with senior command that was my role and function then to make sure that I had and she had the resources rather like Minster and others do you have the resources have we got everything that's going to meet this the needs of this inquiry so that's mm. was involved in it very much and i so that- some reason so, I get into so the coroner's inquest, I can't think why, but I did.
3: Mm,
0: yeah, so that was part of the reason I wanted to talk about that was because I suppose of exactly that point you made that you know it's in, inevitably that's going to be uh, political. I used to describe it as political with a small p, uh, <laughs> I can <laughs> imagine that being intensely political. Um, this the sensitivities around his role, the sensitivities around the fact that he was straddling effectively two super secret organizations, not just one. Uh, which kind of introduces a level of complexity that um, would would be unusual to say the least. So, how did how did you find managing some of those relationships? Did you feel that um, I'm sure you're going to I'm sure um, you, you're not going to disclose any sensitivities that are going to get you or me into trouble. But I mean, how did you find the relationships with those respective organisations? Did you feel that they were willing to cooperate fully in terms of what you were trying to do?
2: Well, I thought so. I mean, I, I suppose I spent most of my police career being fairly amiable and, and, you know, amicable to all those people we meet because that's the only way you're going to get things done. I didn't go into any meeting, and nor was I met with anything which, which suggested refusal, obstruction, or whatever. And if they, I just didn't see that. And mm-hmm. you know, our liaison was was with what was the counterterrorism command as well. So we had liaison there. And the Counter-Terrorism Command obviously worked very closely with the security services one way or another on different operations. But I did meet senior staff from, from the security services and went with Jackie to understand different aspects of the operation, his role, etc. Hmm. But I just thought we were always met with the fullest cooperation yeah. and what yeah. we, wanted, we 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 got um, because at the end of the day, it was a it was a homicide inquiry, mm. and I always said to Jackie, you know, I said Jackie, if there's ever a issue which we don't have or you don't have the information which you would ordinarily have, you just need to ask for it. Let us let the word no sent back to us.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Let, let us let us have the the non-compliance for statements, but that that wasn't the case. So a- again, in the absence of you know, hard fat which can lead to a definitive answer. People will speculate yeah. about things, and yeah. I wouldn't go into too much of it now. Although I, yeah, yeah, I've done a documentary—not a documentary, a radio interview on that—and mm. on his inquest, where I said little I could say.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, um, I mean, now, the thing you see th- obstruction
2: at all?
0: The thing is, um, Hamish, and you know this as well as anyone, probably better than anyone, is that very often in life, um, fact is stranger than fiction. And, yes. And and sometimes um, people do the oddest things, don't they? And, um, you know, you only have to be in the police for a fairly short period of time to see to see that. Um, some of the things we've probably all dealt with, we've had a full career in policing is, pulls you up short sometimes, doesn't he? He's saying, really? Yeah. You know, and um, so um, that, uh, at the inquest, was that an open verdict at the inquest? So basically... we No, know, it wasn't. It was, what was it? It was,
2: it was a narrative verdict. What does that actually mean? It was, it was, it was, when did the narrative verdicts came in? It's when it allows, obviously, without a jury, just a single um, magistrate sitting there, judge. Right. She provided a a short summary of the case. She couldn't rule that he had been unlawfully killed because it was insufficient evidence to show that. But she then went on to say that the probability was that somebody else was involved and that he may have been unlawfully killed. It was a very odd um, (laughs) narrative verdict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was accidental. Yeah, yeah. Suicide. She said she didn't fall into one of the... She didn't seek to label it as one of the... Suicide, accidental, yeah, misadventure, yeah. Left open.
0: Did they not get some? So again, I'm probably murdering the fact here, but um, did they get somebody to prove that you could actually get yourself into this whole doll and zip it up from the inside as some sort of autoerotic?
2: Uh, at the time kind of, of the inquest, no, that hadn't been achieved at the time of the inquest. Although the principle of it could be seen as to how it was done, but no, no other person could do it, and the person. He did a video of himself trying to do it, and that was played at the coroner's inquest. That, I think, probably made the coroner think, well, it can't be done, so let me move to, I probably think someone else or a third party was involved. But after the inquest, when it was reviewed and re-looked at by the assistant commissioner and a small team, they did find someone, someone came forward, an ex-army training sergeant or whatever, to say, I can do it, and demonstrated how it could be done say the principle it was a matter of doing what you know will create that link to go and lock it from the out inside so he did it so that with the final um metropolitan police inquiry and must have been after after the verdict so 2013 said that they believed that he um had done it himself and that it wasn't a third party involved and that was that was the decision so that's not the coroner's decision of course and it doesn't overrule coroner's decision but the Metropolitan Police subsequent re-inquiry came to that conclusion that he that he unfortunately he, he had died on his own and I said that okay. the interview so that that is my my personal yeah. Yeah, yeah. there was no other person involved
0: very strange very strange isn't it I mean my goodness um okay listen um I'm conscious of time I um, just want to cover uh your yeah your new role i said it's probably not new now is it but it's the role that you're so so you're currently an assistant commissioner of the independent commission of investigations um in Jamaica of all places so how on earth did you end up doing that um first firstly what is that what do you do and then secondly how did you end up doing
2: it probably the other way around no. um, <laughs> well when i was so i retired from the met police in 2013 so I knew I was going to be retiring. So I'd done over, I'd done over 35 years by then. I think 30, nearly 38, 30, whatever it was. So I'd retired later than many of my peer group and it was obviously older. And I wasn't going to, I did want to do another job of some sort. And that job just appeared in the Guardian newspaper as an for an assistant commissioner. So I'm sitting in London. So you weren't tapped up for it then? No, no, I, I, I rang here. Um, funny enough, I spoke to a, a person out here who was in the Met and had been in the Jamaican Constabulary Force for some years as a deputy commissioner, and I rang him to, to understand about you know, Jamaica, of course, and the, the, the role, because it's a newly formed organization, only been two years earlier. So that's how I, I just applied for it, and um, I was interviewed on Zoom, it wasn't called Zoom then, I think it was Skype, and I don't think many other people applied for it, to be honest.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I got the job. So, what do I do? I, well, the commissioner then, a man called Mr. Williams, in Jamaican, he's a lawyer, human rights lawyer. He was the commissioner of the um, independent group, but he wanted somebody to support him on the investigation side because he was a lawyer, He'd obviously, both for the DPP and everything else. But I said that I could do that. So, my role is oversight of all the investigations investigation teams. I have executive function here, authority, you know, as sworn in by him. And
0: it's investigations into, I believe, um, shootings of civilians by Jamaican police and security forces. That yes, it?
2: that's its primary function, but its, it's oversight role, and investigative role, is of the three agents of the state here the jdf that's the jamaican defense force which is their army but want of a better word the police force the jamaican constabulary and the department of corrections which run the prisons here right. so we have oversight of all three because there was no independent oversight of any of those organizations before 2010. Hmm. um and it's for any matter which the public complain about so from unlawful detention on long through to the shooting so the act actually was born out of the, the high level of police shootings, fatal shootings and non-fatal which occur.
0: And just to put that in context, how many would we be talking about on a typical year
2: over the last, say, I don't know, five years? Oh, when I came in 2013, for the previous decade and a half, annual police shootings were over 200 a year. Oh, bloody hell. Less than 3 million. And when I, in 2013, it reached a peak of 250. So when I when I arrived, there were four to five fatal shootings a week. Bloody um, hell. 40 in one month at one stage. I thought, this is just, the, there's no way that we can effectively manage this. There's a small team of investigators for the country. Over the years, it's moved down the last, from about 2015, it fell below the 200. Well, it fell below the 200 for the first time in 2014. And then by 2017, it's gone below. It's just in the low hundreds. Right. It sits at 130, 120 a year. And how
0: many staff have you
2: got? Investigators will be about 50.
0: Right. So that's a hell of a case. So in the the UK, as you know, uh, if there's a Mm. serious incident involving sort of harm or firearms uh, discharge, uh, then there's an automatic... uh, uh, referral to the IOPC or what used to be the IPCC um, yes is that the case is there an automatic referral to you for every case or do you only get involved at the request no they have
2: to under the act they have to inform us of forthwith of every um every shooting incident whether it's right. fatal non-fatal or a discharge of firearm. And so it's it's every day right. literally every day I mean in the last week there's been Six or seven fatal shootings. It just mm-hmm. it goes on. Oh so typic, the,
0: typically, um, describe the. It might not appreciate that. It, you know how long is a piece of string, but um, what are the typical circumstances on most of these?
2: Well, depends which story you're listening to, <laughs> because this this is this is the sort of more sensitive area of issue. Well, I report and we report quarterly on on all these shootings, but the 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 one account from the security services will be encounter with gunmen. And right. make a mistake, there are many, many gunmen in Jamaica. I mean, the murder rate at the moment is over 1,000 already, 1,060, 1,000, maybe 1,100 so far this year. It will exceed last year, and last year exceeded the year before. So there's a lot of crime, there's a lot of violent crime. a lot of Most murders are by gun. And the people are encountering some of those gunmen, either by random, spontaneous events, because they're coming at them, and they are, or they're doing armed operations, or seeking to intercept on intelligence. So those encounters would almost inevitably result in yeah. certainly an injury and a death. And then there's the second set of those individuals who are mentally disturbed, mentally unwell, not armed, guns, sometimes unarmed. You know, and we, we we report this publicly. It's in our on our website. You know the the number of people who are actually shot and injured or shot and killed who don't have a gun, those who have a no weapon at all of any sort, mm. those who are mentally ill, and it's, it's, it just is a large number. Yeah. And that's what the commission has been, A, investigating them because there was no independent investigation of these cases.
3: Yeah,
2: And unfortunately, a, you know, a, a significant number of unlawful shootings and the officers are charged with yeah. murder. And oh, it, it was about... The commission has and therefore the, that means the courts have maybe 50 to 60 officers awaiting trial for murder
0: oh bloody hell
2: and so some, um
0: do they a wear do they,
2: do they use body-worn video
0: like they would in the uk
2: the police don't no we we and others organizations have been urging that for years and they had been provided with them and they didn't work or they said they didn't work and it wasn't suitable but the body-worn camera will be the way forward mm. and i th- the trajectory down from over 200 a year to uh, over year is still, phenomenal. you know, fell, occurred at the time when we made a large number of arrests. Mm-hmm. One officer was was convicted eventually and was sentenced to 52 years in prison. Oh, he confessed to his his activities and what he was doing and the killings he had taken place in, both on duty and off duty. And that's again in the in the media. But that particular event and. And I arrived, you know, I sort of led that investigation and used help with my experience and knowledge for our investigators how we would deal with this. Yeah. I did It seemed that's a marker point where the numbers fell very considerably and remain.
0: So are we talking in that type of scenario, are we talking about someone who is basically in cahoots with an organized crime gang looking to take out the opposition? Or are we talking about someone who is just massively trigger happy? And acting as judge, jury, and executioner.
2: Well, it's a, it's a, it's complex. It's a probably a mixture of both. The man who um, received fifty two years in, in prison was a, literally a mixture of both those. Mm. You know, would reported suggested he was. You know, working on behalf of others. Mm. There's some of his own personal um, reasons for it because. It's a it's a very complex issue here in terms of, of, of violence. And the police response and the court process which is sadly very um slow some of our cases and other cases here Hmm. eight to nine years to come to court
3: yeah
2: causes a a lot of stress so there's some big trials running at the moment and been, but they too take time
0: yeah and i suppose the question that springs to mind for me really is inevitably and you know i'm sure you're well aware of this inevitably that put you personally and your staff at some element of risk doesn't it um so is that something that has given you any sort of pause for thought or concern over the years
2: at one stage it did for a while but you know you just get on and certainly the environment for the investigators is very stressful the 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 volume of of deaths and shooting injuries is enormous in the same way Ironically, for the police officers who are investigating murder, you know, there's so many murders. You know, murders are being looked at, you know, primarily by one or two officers. Police officers, a corporal constable, will investigate murders. There's just so many of them. And in turn, the number of homicides here, police security agent shootings, takes its toll in terms of staff hours, on call, non-stop, and our our ability to respond. Is, is difficult and there is there is stress and confrontation for, you know, inevitably hmm. the officers are under stress. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever we want things, they're under stress all the time. And then they're asked to account for and explain this, this, this shooting incident or that shooting incident, hmm. which, which of course they have to because the act enforces them to, you know, compels them to make statements and explain and then their weapons are taken from them, and all the usual routine of independent oversight.
3: Yeah.
2: So I think it is stressful for them, and very much so. But the risks are there. The risks sometimes are there just from attending some of these scenes. Yeah. You know, they're very... Very parents, volatile. ...which are volatile, yes, and which the police themselves... Well, we rely on the police to, to tell the teams whether they should be going to those scenes,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, because, you know, there's no... It's not like in... In England or elsewhere, where the person would remain, the dead person would remain at the scene. That is never the case here. Yeah. Yeah. There, is no, there is no body left at the scene for which a, a standard investigation would
0: commence from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so here, have you any intention whatsoever of finding yourself a nice, relaxing job, like I don't know, working in a working in a florist or something, or doing, going, in, putting your feet up for a bit? Because it strikes me that you've chosen some of the most stressful and demanding jobs imaginable and uh, it's quite extraordinary that you're you're still putting yourself in these kind of crazy situations
2: well they're not so i mean well i mean i might <laughs> you're asking am i going to retire <laughs> no but certainly well yeah i think there comes a time when you you like in being in the police or any any job you you reflect and you have to stand down step aside and my role is has been to support the commissioner and there's a, a new commissioner who's taken over. So he's, and that, that's, that's, I really see my role as the assistant commissioner and helping with the, the, the knowledge I've accrued over the last 40 years on investigations, homicide in particular, and getting teams to investigate, inquire, examine, whether it be interviews, a whole strategy, of all the things you would understand and other, your listeners would understand. Mm-hmm. Comes a time when, yeah, I will stop doing that and someone else um, Somebody from here in Jamaica will take over that role as a deputy commissioner Yeah. Um, support the, you know, the business.
0: I'm sure we can find a nice job for you in a national trust place back in England here, There must be somewhere that's not so kind of full of blood and death <laughs> that we can get you to find for you. Yes, I know. I think
2: it's, a, it's certainly the number of, <laughs> I reflect on the sort of deaths and so on. It's still seen the last, I mean, I've, seen, I've sat here the last 10 years and Nearly 800 police deaths. Oh my God. i ever seen and, and involved in different investigations in different ways and everything. So it's a lot, but mm. it would have to guarantee the weather. Yeah, yeah, that's true.
0: I imagine it must be quite a pleasant view. Do you, do, you yeah. do you live it's in a always,
2: nice... It's always nice. sunny in Jamaica, I can tell you Excellent. that. <laughs>
0: Excellent. Even
2: when it's raining, it seems to be sunny. Really, brilliant.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Listen, my friend, um, it's probably not a bad place just to wrap it up. Um, that was absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating, and uh, I think um, it's mean, really, it. <laughs> a really uh, such a privilege talking to you, and um, to see you looking so well, and obviously massively engaged and doing, still doing some incredible stuff, Uh take my hat off to you for everything you've done, everything you're still doing, and uh, yeah, thank you ever so much for your time. Well, thank
2: you for in, in inviting me and asking me to be on your podcast, it's, it's- interesting as you said in your email reflecting we all go through life just quite happily just getting on and you think actually what was that about
0: (laughs) yeah i think uh, i think people find it really interesting because it's not very often in life is it that you get an opportunity to kind of go back and reflect over all the things that you've done and um yeah a lot of people a lot of people have said that to me um and uh yeah it's great and and i think um you know, policing's gone through such a torrid time in the UK over the last sort of 10 years or so. And and certainly, you know, what I'm all about, really is to try and educate people um, yeah. about what an incredible organisation, what incredible people police officers are. And they certainly don't deserve to be kind of vilified the way that they, I mean, some of them do, some of them do. But most of them um, do, do not deserve to be vilified in the way that they currently seem to be. So, yeah, if I can if I can try and, you know, sort of spread shine, that message, shine a yes. light on that, then that's great. Okay. Listen, uh, I'll let you get on with your day and, um, thank you. you know, the very best of luck and I'll drop your line. I'll let you know when it's going up.
2: Yes, I'll be interested. All right. Thank you very much, Ian. Nice, okay,
0: You take care. God All bless. Right. Bye. bye, bye. Uh, bye. bye. bye.
3: street we used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat but now we never see him it really makes us frown no longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town (laughs) Bye. <laughs>